Good to see you. Um, if you didn't recognize that song, um, that was written by a beloved member from our past, Greg Ritz, and it fits perfectly with our text that we'll be looking at this morning from Ephesians chapter 5. So I invite you to grab a Bible and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. And if you don't have a Bible with you, please do grab one. They're under the seats nearby. And if you don't own a Bible, please just take that with you. Um, well, we're returning to Ephesians after a bit of a break. If you're newer to, newer to our church, we usually take a portion of Scripture and work our way through it, either a, a book of the Bible or a section of Scripture. So we've been working our way through Ephesians for several months. We took a break in December for Advent, and then we had a couple weeks where we focused on the theme of mission and God's compassion for the lost in the book of Jonah. And so now we're returning to Ephesians, and we'll be together in this book for the next couple months. And uh, as a reminder, uh, we have these Ephesians Scripture journals available, so these have the text of, a, of Ephesians in it, and we are really getting back into this plan that we started, which is called the Ephesians Immersion Plan. Um, so I know so many of you were diving deeply into the book of Ephesians uh, this fall and the past few months. I heard from someone that um, was memorizing it, and they're done. Yeah. So I know many of you uh, have been partnering to remember with others, and some of you I know have been meeting weekly to go over portions of the text, and you're going at the rate at which uh, we're moving through the series. So I encourage you to do that. Consider memorizing the book. Consider doing a daily read-through. Either read through the whole book every day or read through a chapter a day and just repeat in the week. I mentioned when we started this series that some of the most life-transformative times in my life have been when I grab a portion of Scripture and just immerse myself in it, reading it over and over and over, over the course of days, weeks, months. And so I encourage you to do that. Uh, maybe you did that in September or so. Maybe do it again for this next month. Just read through the book every week. And I've, I've encouraged people to do that before. And I've gotten the feedback from people with, from the book of Ephesians that if they read the whole book every day for a month, uh, their, their whole way of viewing the world has changed. Um, one of you shared with me a couple months ago after a several weeks of, of reading through it over and over, um, the comment was that he couldn't find a situation in the daily life where something from Ephesians didn't come to mind or a conversation where something from Ephesians didn't seem applicable as it came to mind. So I encourage you to do that. Also, just take this with you when you're waiting in line um, somewhere or you're waiting for a haircut. Um, just redeem the time and immerse yourself in Ephesians. So if you do not have one of these Ephesians Scripture journals, we have these available for you. So if you do have one already, then they're available for a $2 donation at the resource corner. Um, just out this room to the right. If you've never received one, don't worry about putting that $2 in. It's a gift to you. So let's engage with Ephesians again for the next couple months. And uh, this morning then, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 5. And really this text this morning continues this theme that we've been considering the past two weeks from the book of Jonah. Last two weeks, uh, Taylor Sutton and Aaron Lewis taught us through that book, and what a great story that is. And what a great couple sermons, so I'm grateful for them. And the central theme of that book is mission. Jonah shows us how God sent the good news of his mercy to a morally dark city. And in particular, it shows how God invites us into his plan to extend mercy. Um, and that God's saving compassion toward us should transform us 
to be the kind of people who extend that compassion to each other and bring the gospel of Jesus to others that people might know God. So this morning in Ephesians, we're looking at a text that continues this theme, and it really shows us how we as Christians are to engage with our culture and share Jesus with people. So let's read this together and then pray. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 7 to 14. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible, for anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in need of your truth. We also come needing you to open our hearts and minds and hearts to be receptive to your truth. So we pray that your spirit would work in our minds and in our hearts and our wills to open ourselves up to receive what you have to say. We pray that you would do the work that only you can do of convicting us of sin, of exposing the darkness that remains in our minds and hearts, of shining the light of your grace in Jesus in our hearts and transform us to be able to extend that light to others. So we pray that you do that in this time together. Amen. Well, Christians have, you know, always had a hard time uh, thinking through how to engage culture well, how to live as Christians in a broken and fallen culture and world. And Christians have often had three responses to the culture that are less than helpful, we could say. Some of us, and we may all have these tendencies at different times. Some of us may tend to want to escape culture, right? We want to just pull around a close circle of family and friends or Christian friends. We want to be completely disconnected from the culture around us. We don't want to think through the complications of interacting in a world that's morally confusing. Um, and so we want to kind of flee the darkness altogether. Others of us don't want to flee. Uh, we want to fight. And we tend to take a posture of being at war, uh, with other people and with the culture. It comes out in our tone as our brash tone reflects the tone of political talk radio that we listen to. We're quick to get angry. We're quick to see people as enemies. But others don't want to escape or fight. They just fully assimilate. They start to become just like the culture around them. They uncritically conform to the cultural norms. But this text that we're looking at here gives us a better way. This gives us a new image. It's not the image of escaping or the image of fighting, but of shining as light. So Christians are called, according to this text, to shine as light in a dark world. We have a new identity as light in the midst of this world. Now, it's incredibly hard to maintain this kind of mindset and posture, but this is good news. Jesus has come as a light into the world. And as he rescues people from darkness, all those who become Christians, 
He then transforms us to shine His light and extend His grace and be a, a winsome, attractive light in the world, certainly that will cause offense, but is fundamentally light shining in darkness. So this text, is, this text gives us three realities that we can embrace in order to live this way, three realities we're called to embrace to live this way. It's an, a new identity, a new way of living, and a new posture so each of these in relationship to the world around us. We have a new identity in the world, in the culture, a new way of living in whatever culture we find ourselves in, and a new posture toward the culture. So first we have a new identity. We are now light in the midst of a dark world. So let's remember where we are in Ephesians. It's been a while, and as we've been in this book, I've repeatedly drawn attention to just really the two-part overarching structure of the book because it's so helpful to see, and it's this kind of movement from the first half to the second half of Ephesians. That kind of logic that we see is present all over the Bible. And so the logic and the movement is essentially this. The first half is about God and His grace to us in Jesus. It's about who God is, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and how He's poured out blessings on His people through Jesus. He has chosen us to trust in Christ. He has forgiven us of all our sins. He has adopted us into His family as sons and daughters. He's revealed to us His purpose for all of human history, which is to reconcile all things in and under Jesus Christ as King. He's poured out blessings on us. He's given us new life and new hearts, the new birth we call it. He's reconciled us not just together with Himself, but He's begun reconciling us together across different class and ethnic lines. Any lines that divide us, we can be brought together in Jesus Christ. So, that's the first half of Ephesians. Now, we move from the first half to the second half, and the second half is really the implications for all of life. As we embrace this new reality, as we live out this transforming power of grace, we then live a new kind of life. And so, the second half is filled with commands for how to live. So, if you think of the first half as gospel doctrine, gospel grace, the second half is gospel living. And Paul makes this connection between the truth of who we are in Jesus, the grace that we have, and how we live even right here. He's mainly focused in the text we just read on how we live differently as Christians in the world. But he roots this in our new identity. So, notice what he doesn't just doesn't say here. He doesn't say, you need to live differently. You need to be moral. He doesn't just do that. No, he says, this is who you now are by grace, and so therefore, in light of it, in light of this incredible new identity that you have, now in light of this, here's how you live. So, notice in verse 7, he introduces this topic of not being partners with unbelievers in their sinful lives or anyone in their sinful lives, but before he continues to explain what that means, he grounds this command in our new identity. And it's an incredible statement. Verse 8, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. You notice this identity language there? Right, he says you were darkness, but now you are light. And what was surprising to me this week as I spent more time with this text is, is that he doesn't say you were in darkness. He doesn't say that you did dark things. That's true. He says, though, something deeper and more profound. We were darkness. 
There was darkness in the core of our personality. And now we're not just in light. We don't just do things that reflect light, but we are light. And the key is those three words, in the Lord. We are light in the Lord. So he says that when we, when we become united to Jesus by faith, we now have this new identity as light in the Lord, in Him. So here's the big picture. The Bible says that God Himself is light. He is the source of all moral beauty. And the world is dark. Ever since sin entered the world through our first parents, Adam Eve, the world has been morally dark, spiritually dark, and every single human being has contributed to this. Paul says that Christians were darkness, which means none of us came into this world shining as morally radiant light. But here's the good news. God sent Jesus as light into the world to bring light into our darkness. One by one, He has shown the light of His grace into human hearts so that the eyes of our hearts are opened, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, to see Him, to see the beauty of who He is and to trust Him, and then He radically changes us. He not only forgives us for all of our morally dark deeds, but He begins to transform our hearts so that we begin to reflect Him in our lives. We move from being darkness to life, and this has happened to every single person who's trusted in Jesus, even if it might not feel that radical to you. For some of us, becoming a Christian feels this radical. It's like you're sitting in some completely dark room. You can't see anything. You don't know any of your surroundings. You're kind of spiritually and morally just darkened and you know it. And then all of a sudden, boom, light switch on, blinding light, everything's clear. You've never been the same. For others of us, it seems like a dimmer switch was just notched up a little bit. And it's just been slowly going up. Sometimes we wonder if the light's even getting brighter, but as we look back a few years, no, it has, right? It's just dimmer switch has been growing. The light's been growing. If that's your experience, it's still just as radical because the fundamental difference is darkness to light. That first flicker of light with the dimmer switch is light that was not there before. And that was the radical shift. And so we all share in the identity as children of light, according to this text, no matter how bright it seems to you so far in your life. And here's why this is so important for us to see as we think about relating to other people, relating to the culture, because this new identity gives us both humility and confidence at the same time. And that's really a profoundly powerful combination. So think about this with me. First, it gives us humility. Right? When Christians start analyzing culture, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've maybe started to do this, or you've, thought, you've been around people who start to get very astute about analyzing the culture and what's going on, or maybe, maybe if you remember when you weren't a Christian, you're aware of Christians that did this, there's a temptation that can come to pride. Right? We can start feeling like we're better than other people. We're seeing things more clearly. It's a big problem for Christians if they start posturing themselves as superior and against the culture, and people can smell the pride and sense of superiority right away. But this new identity is supposed to make us humble. It says you were darkness. So we're called to analyze why people do what they do, to think through why, why does a culture go in directions it does. We need to be um, very culturally astute people. But this says you were darkness, which means as we analyze a dark culture, what we're doing is we're seeing who we were, what we're still tempted to do, right? Who we would still be if it weren't for Christ shining His light in our hearts. So this gives us incredible 
grace because we wouldn't even be in the light if Jesus hadn't come and died for us and risen and poured out His Spirit in our lives. So this gives us incredible humility, which should lead us to incredible patience and gentleness as we think through how to live as faithful witnesses in our culture. But this also gives us great confidence, doesn't it? God has transformed us. He has given us a new identity. We get to enjoy this new reality. We are light in the Lord. We do start seeing reality more clearly, and we are changing. So many of you have had people pronounce identities over you before. It's powerful. Maybe someone has called you dirty when you were younger or called you a loser. Or maybe you tell yourself that all the time. You feel like an imposter. You're an imposter. Just a terrible person with no hope. But now God pronounces over you in Christ this new identity. You are a child of light. You are light in this world. And it's irreversible. And it's already shining. And it'll get brighter and brighter from here on out. So this humility and this confidence is an incredible combination, a powerful combination. So we don't have to listen to our own self-condemnation anymore. We don't have to fear what people may think of us anymore because we have this new humble confidence in this new identity in Christ. And this new identity now will lead us to a whole new way of living in the world, a whole new way of living everyday life in the world. So that's second what we see. Look at the progression here in verse 8. He says, we are light in the Lord, and then walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So walking is an image that um, Paul uses often to just refer to everyday life, the course of our lives, a lifestyle. So what he's saying here is, Um, If we're to walk as children of life, this is going to be pervasively influential in our life. Walking, lifestyle, everything we do, every aspect of of our lives will be affected by this. We're to live differently every moment of every aspect of life. So, as we continue to think through this together, just have on your mind over these next minutes, just have on your mind different scenarios in your own life because that's what this applies to. Think about your time in your first few hours of your work day. Think about time around the dinner table with family or friends. Think about your time when you have alone by yourself, maybe in the evening. Think about the way you relate to your neighbors. Think of a neighbor right now. Think about the person just across the street from you. Think about your recent interactions with them or him or her. Think about what happens in your thought life. Think back to the last time you talked to a customer service representative about some issue you were bothered about. Just have these scenarios in your mind because this is the stuff of life that this text is speaking to. So Paul says, take all of that and now let the gospel, this good news of God's grace shining in Christ, let this start changing every part of your life. So what does this look like? If this idea of light shining is a bit abstract, let's get a little closer to some specifics. He explains it with three words in verse 9. You can see them with me here. All that is good and right and true. So let's think through this practically. First word, good. All that is good. 
So we shine as light as we consider living in light of all that is good, and we fulfill that in our lives. So these are things that are beneficial to others, right? These are, this, these are things that we say and things that we do that demonstrate selflessness and generosity. And then he says things that are right, all that is right. Paul used this word back in chapter 4 and verse 24. He said that we're now being renewed, as Christians, we're being renewed to become like God's righteous character. So Paul ties this idea of what is right to God, who always does what is right, His righteous character. So we're to live in, live in the world in a way that reflects God's character in the everyday stuff of life. Third, all, all the, the things that are true. So truth, that's about what conforms to reality, right? It's what's consistent with reality. Paul's just used this word in the previous chapter as well. He's used it a lot already in this letter. He said that we have learned the truth that is in Jesus. He says that we are now as Christians called to speak the truth to our neighbors and to one another. So our words then need to be truthful, right? They need to speak honestly about what is true and real, about, about reality. So that's what it looks like to walk as children of light. We reflect God's character by doing and speaking what is good and what is right and what is true in every aspect of life. And then he makes this very personal in verse 10. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So this is really the main question that we can ask of every word we speak and everything we do. Does this please Jesus Christ? So this isn't just about conforming to an abstract moral standard. This is about living in a way that brings pleasure to the Lord Jesus Christ, which is apparently possible. You bring pleasure to Jesus Christ as you live in light of His grace in these ways. This is about living moment by moment in a way that pleases Him. And so this gives us really a consistent standard to run all of our thoughts and words and actions by. I think of how my life would be different if I was more mindful of this more often. I wonder if you feel the same way. As Christians, we still often base our sense of right and wrong by what we feel in any given moment. If something feels right and good, then we feel like it must be right. But if we make our moral decisions based on our feelings, who's really in charge? Right? We are not Jesus. So this is why we need to get to know Jesus. This is why as we get to know Jesus and as we long to please Him because He's rescued us by His grace and He's so kind to us, we start to live differently. We want to please Him. So at the outset of this new year, I encourage you to pursue Jesus this year. Get to know Him. And as you think about living in a way that pleases Him, don't don't let the standard be your own sense of right and wrong only, but let that sense be informed by the Bible. So um, my encouragement at the beginning of the year, let 2020 be a year where the Bible is the book of your life. Immerse yourself in it. Immerse yourself in Ephesians these next couple months. Immerse yourself somewhere else in the Bible after that, and then let that be the primary source that you have for discerning what is good and right and true in any given circumstance. And this is hard work, isn't it? This is why we need each other. This is why we should just have ongoing open conversations with each other, bringing our ethical dilemmas to each other, talking about it as we meet together or around the dinner table or in small group. 
Bring up scenarios, things you're struggling with, things you saw, things you want help thinking through, and consider what God's Word says together about these matters. And before we move on, I want to give a couple examples. This is just such an all-encompassing reality that we're talking about, standard that we're talking about, that's really hard to know where to start at some point sometimes. But let's just take this third word Paul gives, right? All that's true. So, walking as children of light means, in part, small part, speaking what is true and only what is true. So, what's the opposite of that? Deceptive speaking, right? It's lying. For example, using your words to mislead someone, to make them think about reality in a way that doesn't actually reflect reality, right? It's distorting reality, And it's far more pervasive than we might think. Uh, Pamela Meyer gave a TED Talk in the past few years about lying, and she began her talk like this. I don't want to alarm you, but the person sitting next to you is a liar. And the person sitting on the other side of you is also a liar. And the person sitting in your seat is also a liar. We are all liars. And she pointed to... Um, some studies that show that we may be lied to every day between 10 to 200 times. Studies, one study showed that strangers lie three times within the conversation when, within which they met each other. Think about the corporate fraud that gets, just, even that just that gets reported every year. And this means that when we become Christians, we get this new identity, but it's going to take a lot of time and work to be transformed to reflect Christ with the way we speak, won't it? It's going to take a lot because this is so pervasive in our lives. We just do not see how often we distort reality with our words to manipulate a circumstance, to manipulate the way someone thinks or feels about something, and we we, we lie and we're deceptive probably lie more than we're aware. I've noticed a number of Christians who seem far too free to deceive in order to save money, which ties to the thing Paul talked about in the text before this we saw a month or so ago about this issue of greed and covetousness. This includes lying about your kid's age to get a cheaper ticket. It includes lying about your financial situation to get a discount. Have you ever been through the checkout line and it was rung up wrong in your favor? What do you do when you realize it? Do you stay silent and try to keep back the grin? Or do you say something about it to make the situation reflect reality be honest? I'm grateful for my mom's influence in my life regarding this. I was reflecting on this just this past week because I got some time with her, and I was talking with her about a situation that came up in her life the past couple weeks too. She said a store shipped her two items when she only paid for one. And it was a mistake. So what do you do? Well, she called them and asked what they wanted her to do. And they wanted her to bring it back. And they were shocked because nobody does that. One time she was buying two items at the checkout and the cashier only rang up one. And these were $80 items. And so she walked away, didn't realize it until she walked away. It didn't quite seem right. She looked at her receipt and realized that she got one of these $80 items for free in the sense because it wasn't rung up. And so she realized that and then she went back and she told the cashier that she missed that and the cashier was shocked and said, nobody does this. And we may think, well, it's not a big deal. I mean, come on, 
corporations, they have so much money. The stores have so much money. They're going to miss it. But these are real people. Like someone's paying for this, right? Um, and, and this cashier was so grateful because she knew she was going to get audited and there was going to be some inventory taken and she'd be in trouble. Someone would be in trouble missing that $80 items. They were so grateful. And there's this moment where light was shining in the darkness and it was so surprising because of how pervasive the darkness is. So what's the ultimate reason we do all of this? Right? Not just because it's right, though that's true, but because Jesus is the source of truth. Jesus has rescued us by His grace, and now His pleasure is seen when we reflect His character in the world, in all of our dealings, no matter how small we think they may be. And as parents, just reflecting on my mom's influence in my life, I encourage you to keep Jesus central in your family's life and your conversations about ethics. And think about how to both receive forgiveness from Him for our failings and also speak about the power that He gives to transform us. Help children to think about what's right and good and true in a culture that's allergic to making any kinds of pronouncements like that. Help children identify examples. Use your own failings as examples. And when you fail to them, apologize for it. That shows them that you yourself are living above a standard that's higher than yourself. You're a family that's under the authority of Jesus and wanting to live under the smile of Jesus. Help them see the difference between our culture's norms and Christ's characters. And just as important as teaching it is modeling it, because your words will eventually be empty, right, if it's not matched by your life. Okay, let's move third and finally, our new posture. We get a new identity that leads to a new way of living, And then this leads us to have a new posture toward the world. I mentioned at the beginning that Christians often relate to the culture in one of three unhealthy ways. Some try to escape it. Some try to just fight against it. Others just become like it. But this new identity gives us a better way. It gives us a posture of healthy engagement with the world. It leads us to be, we could say, lovingly against and for the world. Have you heard that phrase, you know, we're not in the world, or not of the world, but in the world, right? Sometimes we use that so frequently, we forget what that can mean. And this really gives us a vision to be in the world, but not of it, and yet also for it, to be lovingly against and for the world. So we see this in a couple ways. First, we are called to expose darkness. Verse 11, you can read it with me. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness but instead expose them, for it's shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. Now, this image of exposing, that's still working with this metaphor of light, right? Light exposes what's been in the dark, right? So, when light shines in a dark room, it exposes what's there. It exposes what was hidden. It exposes reality. It helps us to see what's really going on there. And Paul's saying, this is what the lives of Christians are to do in the world. This is how Christians' lives are to function in the world. We were darkness, now we're light, and now we're shining in the darkness, exposing what's there. Now, this assumes that we are in the world. We are embedded in the world. And it also assumes that we're distinct from the world in particular ways. This means that people should be able to see in your life, if you're a follower of Jesus, they should be able to see a radical, surprising difference in your life. Maybe in big things, maybe in small things, but they see this pervasive change in your life. And they'll be surprised 
and how your life contrasts with cultural norms. This doesn't mean that everyone will like the way we live. Whenever light exposes darkness, there can be offense taken, not because we're offensive, ideally, but because the light is doing its work. The light's exposing darkness. John 3, 19 to 20 says this, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world through Jesus, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, lest his works should be exposed. So there's going to be a tension in the life of Christians as we shine as light, right? We're exposing darkness, and that can be attractive in some ways to shine light, but it can also feel offensive in other ways, and so we need to embrace that. There's also times when we need to help people see that their works are dark. There are a lot of things done in secret in our culture that need to be exposed. I think of places where children are trafficked or where women and children are abused or when there's abuse of power in an institution. There are other aspects of our culture that are actually done in the open, in a sense done in the light, but have, they've been portrayed as light. I think of abortion. It's widely accepted in our culture, but the reality of it is hidden with euphemisms and science-denying statements. It's framed as a moral good and as a human right. About a week ago at the Golden Globes, I was watching and saw that it was honored as a moral good, but it's actually a form of child sacrifice. It happens at the rate of a million times each year in our nation, and so we have to shine the light of truth into this situation showing the reality of human dignity and what that really means to believe in human dignity. One aspect of our posture toward the culture is exposing then, but the second's this, transforming. Now, I didn't see this until studying this text more closely this week. The ultimate purpose of exposing darkness is not to make people feel lousy or bad. The ultimate purpose is for them to see the light and become light. The purpose of shining light in the world is to spread that light, that people would be transformed from darkness to light. The logic of this text is somewhat tight and hard to follow, but listen to verses 13 and 14. But when anything is exposed to the light, so as Christians have their exposing work happening, when anything's exposed to the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So he, here's the logic as I understand it. When our lives shine in the darkness, it can make the darkness become visible and light. And then it's not just the light of our lives shining on people, but the light of Christ can shine on people. And as Christ's light shines on people, it brings them to become light. It transforms them. So here's the logic. When our lives shine in the darkness, our hope is that they would not just be surprised to see the light, but they would hear about Jesus and come to him and be transformed to become light as well. We want them to see their darkness for what it is, that they might come to the light, that they might leave the darkness, not just feel worse about it. We want them to experience the same transformation that we've experienced in coming out of darkness. So let's wrap up by focusing on a, key, a few key steps that we can take to get this integrated into our lives. So what does it look like 
to live as light in the world. So here's just four steps. First, be transformed by the light of Christ. Be open to receiving the light of Christ. If you've not yet trusted in Jesus, He invites and calls you to do so today. Jesus said when He came into the world, He said, I am the light of the world. Jesus was actually the only person who was not darkness, the only one who lived a life of radiant moral beauty. And yet then he went to the cross, and as he died on the cross, the gospel stories tell us that the sky went dark over the land. And it went dark because it's picturing this judgment that Jesus took, bearing the punishment that we deserve for our lives of moral darkness. And then on the third day, he rose again at dawn as the sun's rising, right? Because light is breaking into the world through the resurrection of Jesus. And then now he is now pouring out his spirit from heaven into human hearts to shine the light of his grace into our lives. And he's been doing that for 2,000 years. 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says this, For God said, the God who said, let, let light shine out of darkness has shone into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So God is calling us to come out of darkness, to receive His light as it shines into our heart, the light of His grace in Jesus, and we receive His forgiveness, we receive His grace, we receive His transforming power, we receive this new identity as light. So that's the first step. If you want to be light in a dark world, you just come to Jesus and you receive. You receive Him. Second, okay, for those of you who are light, those of you who have this new identity in Christ, second step, overlap your life with people who don't know Jesus. Find intentional ways to overlap your life with the lives of people who have not been exposed to the light. We are light, and light is meant to shine in the darkness. This means that we cannot try to pull out of the world and hide ourselves together. We need to be in the world. We need to be engaged with people. We have to spend time with people in order for our light to be perceived, in order for the light to shine. I think, think of someone who just lives down the street from you. They're in the dark, let's say, in spiritual and moral darkness, and Christ has made you light, and He has placed you five houses down from them, two houses down from them, 50 feet away from them. He's placed you there. How will they ever see the light that this is talking about if you don't spend time with them? They will not see it by you just walking to the mailbox and back and driving in and shutting the garage door behind you, right? They, they will only see it if we overlap life with each other. So we have to be intentional to engage with people. I'm so encouraged by how so many of you do this so well. Serving in different ways, exposing yourself to people through your vocation, serving on board, serving as teachers, serving your neighbors, opening your home for dinner with people. So third step, so we overlap. Third step is to live as a countercultural presence. Right? We don't just overlap our lives with people and hope for the best. We intentionally live as light in the world. We seek to shine as light in the ways that this text has called us to, in the way we live and how we speak. Now, I know some Christians who live such beautiful lives of light, beauty, kindness, 
and yet they don't have much experience in overlapping life with those who don't know Jesus. And I know other believers who have a lot of overlapping relationships with people, and their light, though, is very dim. They're not intentionally seeking to shine the light of Jesus. There's power when both of these are brought together. Following Jesus with all your heart, receiving and reflecting his life, and bringing that to the places that are dark in the world around us. Finally, speak about Jesus. Just living differently won't transform someone from darkness to light. We need to share Jesus with people. We need to tell people where the true light has come from. And this really is, you know, best done in the context of relationships. Right? Many people, most people, seem to come to Jesus after two things happen. First, they hear the gospel multiple times in multiple different settings, multiple different ways. They hear it over and over in different ways, maybe just pieces of it, the goodness of God, the grace of God. And they hear about the cross of Jesus and his forgiveness. They hear about how we live in a story. The world is broken and God's going to make all things new one day. And, and then, then it's pieced together for them. They hear it multiple times in different ways. And then the second thing that happens is they have repeated engagement with experiencing Christian community. They see the love that Christians show other people. They experience the light and they're exposed and they're drawn. So this means that we need to be both patient and intentional, right? We take a long-term low-key approach, but an intentional approach. Shining light, speaking of Jesus, looking for opportunities to share about how Jesus has changed us and how he's brought light into our world. What a privilege. What a privilege it is that the Lord would welcome us, not just to his heart, not just to his light. He wouldn't just scatter the darkness from our heart, but that he would let us participate in how he brings light to the world. So you mean, even just as we pull away from this parking lot, just think about your community. Think about the places you drive by. Think about the places you're a regular. Think about the people in your lives. And just pray together. Maybe pray over lunch together. Or pray sometime just you and the Lord alone. Just pray, Lord, help me do this. Help me to, to receive your grace in such a way that I can't help but want to please you. And would you please bring people to the light through me? Let's let this be our prayer for 2020. So we'll sing a song in just a few moments. I'll invite the musicians up, and let's pray first. Our Father, we come to you bringing all that we are, including what is still so dark in our hearts. And we thank you for receiving us. We thank you that you shine the light of your grace into our hearts. We thank you that you are still doing that. And we pray that we would live in such a way, moment by moment, that you would help us to be mindful of your smile and smile in Jesus over our lives as we walk as light. So we pray that you'd help us. We pray that we would be surprised by what you do as this light shines. We pray that we would celebrate what you do in coming months over this year as light shines in our communities and you bring people to the light. We long for that to happen. We long to be part of it. We long for you to be, bring revival and renewal to Zionsville and Whitestown and Carmel and the Indianapolis area. 
We pray the same thing for all these gospel faithful churches in our region, that they would be bright beacons of light shining in the communities and people throughout everyday life in the week would be shining in their workplaces and neighborhoods and friendships and in their families, and that you would do powerful things through us by bringing people to Jesus and expanding your light. We long for the day when Jesus would return to make all things bright and new as well. Amen.